<clears throat> now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In Episode 7, Just Science interviews Dr. Kathleen Gregoris and Cole Whitecotton from the National Center for Media Forensics about deepfakes. Deepfakes are a form of synthetic media that replaces an existing image with someone else's likeness. While relatively new, deepfake technology has grown in sophistication over the last few years. In some cases, the synthetic image is almost indiscernible from the person that it is imitating. Dr. Kathleen Gregoris and Cole Whitecotton are working to understand and combat deepfakes. Listen along as they discuss the capability implications and the future of deepfake technology in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Mike Planty. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Planty, with NIJ's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. Here to help us with the discussion today are two guests from the National Center for Media Forensics based out of the University of Colorado, Denver. Dr. Kathleen Gregoris and Mr. Cole uh, Whitecotton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Dr. Gregoris serves as director for the National Center of Media Forensics. Uh, He coordinates the center's activity, including education and scientific projects. His research encompasses digital signal processing of forensic multimedia, including digital recording, authentication, audio image analysis, and enhancement. He is a member of the Audio Engineering Society, American Academy of Forensic Sciences, Digital Media, Multimedia Section, and the Scientific Working Group on Digital Evidence. He has numerous articles on forensic audio, video issues, and technology. Cole Whitecotton is an IT professional at the center. Cole helps develop and maintain the equipment and software used throughout the center's education and research programs, both online and in the classroom. He has contributed to multiple research projects, including uh, DARPA run metaphor program. Today's discussion is on deep fakes. So let's start with you first, Cole. Uh, we all have some familiarity with you know basic photoshopping. My son, uh, for my uh, last couple of birthdays, has put my head on various animals and uh, sent me a nice card. What type of manipulation are we talking about when we talk about deep fakes? Sure. So Unlike the sort of Photoshop that you're talking about there, deepfakes is really uh, an AI-generated process. Um, Deepfakes is a portmanteau, essentially, of deep learning and fakes. That's kind of where the term comes from. And it can be a lot of different things. I think we're probably most familiar with the video side of it. Um, I think it was sometime in 2017 that this seemed to kind of just blow up and explode out of nowhere. A person on Reddit actually with the username Deepfakes posted this tool and and some videos of this. But essentially it's using deep um, neural network, deep learned models to put a face onto someone else's face. Um, And that's the the kind of more common way that we see it and what what we're a little more used to in the media and and stuff like that. But I mean, it's it's any sort of now, it's kind of become a catch-all term for any sort of AI generated uh, manipulations or media, including uh, deep voice, which is, you know, doing a similar thing, but with audio, mm-hmm. with kind of mimicking and modeling people's voices and, and and generating voice that way. There's also like music and composing. You know, you see a lot of stuff. I think uh, this song was composed in the style of Bach or Beethoven, but it's all computer generated. And it's all just taking all of that stuff through a neural network, through some sort of AI modeling, and then producing something out, out the other end. Um, but I think something I actually just learned about not too, not too long ago was that uh, this is also being used in the financial world. Apparently there's, there's a lot of automated tools and a lot of AI used to detect um, uh, falsifications in financial records and things like that. And that there are actually models being used to combat that detection by generating what looks like human made journal entries and stuff like that. Um, and I think that goes along in with, that's kind of the number side of the language side of stuff too. There's also generated text 
Um, OpenAI is a, a kind of big organization company that is working really hard on generating text, generating articles, generating volumes of, of that sort of stuff too. So deep fakes in itself though kind of encompasses everything. It's like I said, it's kind of a catch-all term for all of that stuff. But what we mostly know of and when we think of deep fakes is the video side of stuff. Putting you know, Barack Obama's face on the comedians, kind of puppeteering his person, his face. And, and so uh, it has, like you said, a lot of very positive in the movie uh, making world and in, in other uh, commercial entertainment type of businesses. It's very positive. But for every positive attribute, it's taking on a negative form. So why is the area of deepfakes so important? What, what are the implications and harms that could come from it? Sure. Well, I think there's some obvious implications and things that we've already seen. Um, we've obviously mm -hmm. seen people posting things without other people's consents, using actors and people that are in the public to make it look like they're doing something that they're not doing. So that's an obvious implication. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest one that we've sort of dealt with kind of and actually seen in the public. But, you know, that just goes along with misinformation as well. In my opinion, I think probably the biggest threat, it's a little less of a threat. I think defects are less of a threat to us in the U.S. I mean, and, and sort of, I don't want to say necessarily, but the Western kind of culture, I think the biggest threat in these actually comes from misinformation in foreign ways. Um, either kind of governments causing and creating misinformation for their own people, but then also for the rest of the world. So... You know, an example of that would be something like, um, I think it's pretty, Kim, Kim Jong-il was famously known for having shot 11 holes in one and the first time he's ever played golf and stuff like that. And imagine in that country, if they all of a sudden had video of a golfer getting a hole in one and they could put Kim Jong-il's face on it in a, a much more kind of believable way, then that could become a piece of information that kind of adds to that sort of stuff. So I think in the foreign kind of, misinformation way, I think that's the most damaging aspect, in my opinion. So Cole, you mentioned AI being a big component with uh, deep fakes. Could you say a little bit for our listeners around what AI is? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, AI just stands for artificial intelligence. Um, the idea behind it is that there's a lot of, you know, in movies and stuff, you see robots and and, and that sort of thing that, that you put a little consciousness inside of a, a computer or something like that becomes an artificial intelligence. There's a lot of, you know, that's a huge field, a huge world. There's a lot of different ways that, that AI is kind of measured and, and determined whether or not it really is artificially intelligent. Um, in terms of as far as deep fakes, though, what it is, is it's what they call um, neural networks. It's essentially the way that links are made between one thing and another thing. So I think a really common way, a common one that people start off with is sorting networks. So if I give a computer a whole bunch of pictures of dogs, I train that computer to know what dogs look like. I then dump a whole bunch of random pictures into it. I want that computer to be able to tell me all of these pictures that are dogs and all these pictures that are not dogs. There's a lot of complications. There's a lot of things involved with that. You know, not all dogs are black or not all dogs are brown. Not all dogs are big. Not all dogs are little, that sort of stuff. So it takes a lot of work and a lot of training to train that network to understand and be able to reliably recognize what a dog is. In the world of deep fakes, you're essentially doing a similar thing. You're giving it a face and you're saying, hey, I want you to build a model that is of this face. I want you to know the points where the eyes are, the color of the eyes, the color of the skin, the color of where freckles are, where the mouth is, how the mouth moves, how the teeth is, a whole bunch of parameters there. I want you to understand this person. I want you to understand this model as deeply as you possibly can because I'm going to give you another face and I want you to build that face on top of that other model. And that's essentially how, how the deepfake works. Um, in the deepfake world, there's a couple different ways of doing it. Some of them are what they're called generative neural networks. Some of them are adversarial neural networks. In the adversarial world, you're essentially pitting two separate AIs against each other. One of them is generating a face and the other one is telling the other one whether it's good or not. And by putting them against each other, it's sort of like a teacher-student relationship is what it is. The teacher is telling the one that's generating it, yes, this is good or no, it's bad. Make it again, do it again, over and over and over. And doing it millions and millions and millions of times over and over and over every second. The other way, the generative is essentially you're creating it, they're called encoders and autoencoders. 
is, that's more along the lines of what I was saying earlier. I want you to learn this model. I want you to learn this face as well as you can, because when I give you this other face, I'm going to have you build this face on top of that face. And so that's usually, that's the most common way and the, the easier way for, for these, for the deep fakes to work. And that's how you get stuff like, you know, the comedian Jordan Peele impersonating Barack Obama with Barack Obama's yeah. face on top of it. It's, it's, that, it's a mixture of a lot of stuff. They had to do a lot of post-processing for it, but that's how you get that sort of stuff. I'm putting that face on top of this other face. And then it's like a puppet. Then you're literally moving your face and whatever your face is doing, it's making that other face. It's generating a face on top of your face. So, Professor Gregorich, uh, what's the scope of crimes? We heard a few from Cole, but where are these cases that you're handling or dealing with, or law enforcement dealing with, uh, involving deep fakes? I would uh, like to start, first of all, uh, with a brief description of the big picture. Deep fakes, if we speak about the face manipulation, are just one category of video manipulation. And I mean much more... Uh, techniques like uh, to remove people, to add people in a video, to remove or add objects. And uh, the face is just one part from the pixel's point of view now of the entire image. So uh, when we speak about uh, deep fakes, we usually speak about a few other techniques like green screen removal, which is a very common technique uh, and uh, the technology is uh, for free, available on internet, to play with this kind of green and blue screen removals. And uh, you can remove the background with a still image or with a video, with whatever you want. It, everything is up to the imagination. And of course, if we come back to government, by the test that is provided to the people that are, that are hired to manipulate the audios and videos. As we already noticed, uh, not only in the US, but all over the world, yes, we can start speaking about smart fake news. You are all familiar with fake news. It's nothing new from this point of view, but uh, we can start speaking about smart uh, fake news. News that uh, embeds audio or video that are inconsistent with originals, that they are manipulated, and also with text, with a nice story. Sometimes the story has, is based on a truth. So from the entire story, half of it is probably the truth. And on top of it, it's very easy to start building uh, a virtual reality. Virtual reality, not from a pixel or a mathematical point of view, but from a logical or philosophical one, a parallel world. And uh, we start speaking about uh, governments, that are not friendly, of course. Uh, as Cole mentioned, governments against people, governments against government, people that uh, break the copyrights and they use for fun, as they claim, different uh, faces of politicians, actors. Uh, is a longer list, and uh, essentially speaking, I started with Cole with, and with other colleagues to uh, build a kind of uh, syllabus of this kind of techniques, and also a kind of list with uh, real case scenarios. And if, uh, both of them are open lists. I can tell you by now that we cannot speak about uh, a final list. No, it's open. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one of the challenges really about this is that whole blending, right? It's, it's just not, this is complete counterfeit, right? This is not a completely made up. It's a blending of the real with the virtual, with the made up. And that's really, so when you have a video, 90% of it may be true, may be real, but it's the 10% that's been manipulated, enhanced, edited. That's the real challenge, right? Uh, is to find that part of the video or the audio or any multimedia, as you said, any digital product that's uh, been manipulated. And it's the same thing with the counterfeit, right? So when you make a counterfeit, uh, you'll take a receipt or a transaction and you won't modify the whole thing. It'll only change 500 to 5,000 or something like that, right? And, and so that's the real problem solving that examiners like yourselves are really faced with. Exactly. And when we face these kind of new challenges and uh, we uh, have to explain them to the people and to do it on a common language, it's uh, recommended to come with uh, other forensic science examples like a banknote. 
and I follow exactly the logic that uh, from your example. Supposing that somebody has the ink, the paper, and uh, all the know-how to build a banknote. But in the end, there is a huge challenge uh, when it is about the serial number. So from all these security features, one of them is enough to be found inconsistent with an original. Then uh, the logic uh, is quite simple. The banknote is uh, not original. So uh, we do the same in our field. We are looking for different types of uh, image manipulation, uh, for green screen, uh, for uh, recompression, uh, because uh, recompression and resizing of an image are well-known techniques that are used by different people to mask the local traces of manipulation. We look for deep faces, deep fakes. We are looking for deep voices as well. We look for traces of edits like inserts, deletions in an audio as well. So uh, we uh, try to apply uh, the best science available now that is peer-reviewed, is uh, well-documented, and we know the error rate, and we feel comfortable to not only apply them, but to be able to explain if it is necessary. So that's what happens. So someone comes to you, say, well, with a video, and they're saying, this is not me. You go through these steps. Say, uh, come this fall, someone presents you with a video, a candidate, and they're saying, I didn't say these things. Uh, I need some evidence that uh, to support uh, this. What's your process working with a client like that? Yes. So uh, I would uh, also like to disclose that there are two major uh, scenarios. One, when somebody claims that it's not his face and he approaches us or another university or forensic lab, this is uh, the case number one. And case number two is uh, when by default we follow, and not only us, many other universities and scientists, we follow different uh, websites and we are looking for this kind of uh, videos. On some of uh, the websites, it is expectable the videos to be manipulated. Uh, also, when it is about news, breaking news, let's say, or different important websites that upload the videos, by default, we start to batch process them. And uh, it's like uh, phishing, but this is a scientific phishing. It's not just gambling. No, this is uh, about applying the real science on real videos and try to move as fast as possible. And uh, you see this kind of two different scenarios. Uh, the science is the same. Just the way we collect the evidence is different. In one case, we wait for a client, a potential client, to contact us. In the second one, we look for the evidence and uh, analyze them, as I said, by batch processing. And uh, we speak about uh, the size of the pixels and the mathematical relationship between the pixels. The pixels that we see in an original video follow a mathematical rule. They are not just random. Uh, each pixel is in a mathematical relationship uh, against the neighbor. And uh, we start speaking about blocks of data in an image that are correlated mathematically. Whenever we edit locally an image by removing a person, by inserting a person or an object or a face, we change the original mathematical relationship between pixels. And this is why we say that it is very easy to cheat the human vision, meaning the eyes and the brain, but it's way harder to cheat the mathematics. Sure. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's what you're relying on are those relationships built in. And when, when there is some distortion or modification, it's going to leave some sort of artifact. And that's what you're looking for. Exactly. And we apply different mathematical solutions, different algorithms. They are completely different. And in the end, we try to correlate the results to see if they are consistent. And if uh, like this, we can verify one method with another. Always use several methods. So you have some validation that uh, tools are coming up with the same outcome. So Cole, so 
so we were talking about the manufacturing of these. How complicated is it to make a deep fake video or audio? I mean, could someone off the shelf kind of product? Uh, so there have been attempts to kind of make off the shelf stuff. Um, I think we've, there's been articles and stuff like that. I sometime last year that there was an app that was, you just upload a, a picture or video and they'll make it for you and do it for you. And they'll show you what you look like if you're 50 years older and stuff like that. All of that comes from this open source world of the deep fake lab stuff that that's coming out. Um, you can find uh, GitHub repositories. It's not like it's hidden. It's not necessarily underground, but it is very much coming from an open source world. This is a, you know, lots and lots of people contributing to from all over the world and all sorts of different backgrounds contributing to these projects to this. They're not necessarily open in the sense that like there's a person, they're putting their face out there and saying, this is, hey, my tool, and this is how I'm doing this. It's, it's all sort of underground in that way, but that's kind of the open source community in general. Um, there are other companies that are obviously, I mean, you can guarantee that places like, you know, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, they're all working on their stuff. Um, huge corporations like Disney, um, Disney actually just released, I want to say it was sometime last week that they're working on super high res versions of, of the deepfakes kind of capabilities. So it's there, it's available, it's not necessarily, you don't have to have a computer science degree, it's not necessarily at that level where you're writing up your own code and stuff like that. And it's getting, as time has gone on, it's gotten easier and easier and easier for you to just grab something you download and then just start running something. But it does require resources, it requires time is probably the biggest thing. Um, if the more money you can kind of throw at it in hardware, the quicker things can become. Uh, but just generally kind of, you know, being the person in your parents' basement sort of a thing, it's still completely viable as much as it is for academic researchers and stuff like that to do it as well. Um, one of the, the kind of big things, though, that I, I wanted to add on to kind of what we were talking about earlier, deepfakes are just a tool. They're just a, they're a thing, just like Photoshop, you know, the invention of the digital image and the idea that we could edit something digitally on our computers was like the end of like, we could never believe our eyes anymore. And we've gotten accustomed <laughs> to it and we've grown to that. It's just another tool. It's another evolution of that same thing. You know, it, all it is, is doing is it's, it's editing images. It's just editing images rapidly in a video and it's doing it yeah. with AI as opposed to doing it singly by hand. And I think kind of tying that into the making of it, it's still very much in its earlier stages. It's personally, I don't think that there's been a deep fake video created that a person looking at it doesn't immediately go, well, there's, there's, there's something wrong with that. This is something off. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's not going to, there's nothing at the level where it's going to be in a, in a movie theater on a huge screen with hundreds of thousands of people watching it and completely believing that that thing happened. And, and the reason why is because, you know, the, one of the kind of backbones of deep fakes is that it's automated the amount of work that goes into making a CGI scene and making it look real there, those scenes exist, but the amount of manpower that had to go into it, you know, it was a lot. And it takes a ton of money, a ton of time, a ton of know-how, a ton of knowledge. The movement to deepfakes is to try and automate all that stuff. So in that way, you know, I think the ultimate end goal is going to be that there will be something out there that someone can put on their computer. They can add a whole bunch of images to it, throw a couple of videos into it, hit a button and an hour later, something pops out. And that does exist. It's just, it's not at that level where anything that's done that way is going to be believable. You know, the amount of time and the amount of processing that has to be done to make it believable. And I think a lot of times you see these videos, you don't also see the post-processing that goes into that too. A lot of times the biggest limitations with the deep fakes when you're making them is that they're limited to really small resolutions. So like looking at the screen, like what we're looking at right now, where a tiny little head in the little window, even though I'm looking on this, you know, on a 4K monitor, the amount of pixels that make up our face are relatively small. If you tried to take that and blow that up to a 4K screen and I'm just looking at you directly or any actress or, you know, and they do close-ups in movies all the time, right? I mean, you, you get a big, huge face. To process that amount of data, those amount of pixels, is a much, much bigger ask than it is currently right now, where you're looking at videos on a cell phone, something small, something screen. So they're actually usually, I mean, for the longest time, I think the deepfake stuff was limited to 64 by 64 pixels, which is almost nothing. I mean, you know, megapixel cameras 20 years ago were taking pictures that had more detail in the face than that. So, um, and that's where the big, the kind of Disney researchers releasing their, their high definition version of deepfakes that's still only 1,024 by 1,024. That's less than a quarter of high definition. I mean, that's still really small. So um, I think those are the, the technical limitations are still there. And I think a lot of that is what's gonna really keep it from becoming just this huge thing. And that, that's why I kind of put out there that it's, it's a tool. It's a piece of 
of a thing that can be used for creative purposes, it can be used for just having fun, and it can be used for misinformation. I still, my argument though is that the strongest tool, the easiest tool to use for misinformation is just memes, just pictures with words on them. That conveys and does more for misinformation than the most realistic, crazy deepfake CGI, AI, everything video that you could possibly put out just because it's the quickest and it's the easiest for anybody to do. Anybody can do that. You know, there are a million apps that let you take a picture, put words on it and post it to Facebook yeah. or you know, whatever social media. So, and then that's just the video side of it. Add on to that also the audio side of it. Probably the biggest limitation for the deepfake videos is that you can get a person who roughly has the same body type, has the same hairstyle, and you can put someone's face on them. But do they also do a great impersonation of their voice? Can you make them say something that they literally didn't say? Right now, it's I'm puppeteering someone's face. My words are still coming out and my voice is coming out. So the deep voice side of that, the audio side of that is even more kind of crazy, especially to the human ear. Human ears really great at picking up voices and picking up problems with voices. So even right now, the most advanced kind of AI voices still have a, that sounds kind of robotic, that cadence doesn't quite sound right. They're still, so a little the same idea. So until the video and the audio come together at that super high level, there's always going to be like, yeah, there's something wrong with that. I can kind of tell, you know, that that stuff is still there. But overall, deepfakes are easy to make. But to make a good, high-quality deepfake, it takes way more work than I think most people are willing to put into something like that. I think the researchers, the companies, the people that are pushing it, they're obviously going to do that. And believe me, they're all working on that. But for just the average person at home or on their cell phone, it's, it's just not there. And it won't be there for a long. It'll eventually be there, I'm sure. But it, it won't be there for a long while. So trolling 101 is still the way to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And, and yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to make a, a meme that takes me three weeks to put together to burn somebody that burned me three weeks ago. And I'm going to do it right now. Anything I can get done in five minutes, that's the most important thing. So yeah, it's still, again, it's a tool and it's there, but you know, it took forever for Photoshop to be just run on people's laptops and stuff like that. You know, it's a similar idea. Obviously, it's going to move faster. Technology is moving faster now. But it's I really think of it in a similar way. It's a tool just like Photoshop, Premiere, all those things where it's going to become ubiquitous. And, it, and I mean, it is out there. It's just, you know, the idea that it's going to run on somebody's cell phone in a high quality way is still a long way off. Sure. And, and when you think about the consumer of this misinformation, it's easier to take somebody's statement out of context and put in other things and have a, a montage of things out of context to convey uh, a certain um, viewpoint than it is to, like you say, spend three weeks of intensive audio and media manipulation to get the same point across. Right. Well, and a perfect example of that was last year, there was a video of Speaker Pelosi. Go look at this video. She's drunk. It took two seconds for anybody to watch that to realize all they did was slow that down. There's no deep fake. There's no way. There's nothing in there. Someone ripped a video, put it in Premiere, slowed it down by 20% or whatever, and put it back. And now all of a sudden she sounds drunk. That's all that took. That was nothing. You know, and again, that's the easy thing. And until deep fakes hit that point where I can create a convincing deep fake in five minutes, there's no way it's going to be that ubiquitous. So Sure. But we also know that many, most offenders are early adopters, right? They're, they're the ones that are getting in on the technology and saying, hey, look at this. Here's an outlet. So uh, that's always a challenge as technology evolves. Uh, eventually, you're going to be facing some of these um, really uh, interesting uh, problems. So, Dr. Uh, Gregoris, um, what other types of problems do you address in the field of media forensics? We talked about deep fakes, but uh, some of these other things that uh, you have experienced with. Media forensics uh, is the science that deals with uh, audio, image, and video enhancement, authentication. We also deal with evidence retrieval or collection. We have to respect best practice guidelines to collect evidence, like the police has best practice guidelines to collect the DNA and fingerprints from the crime scene. The logic is exactly the same in our field. So don't touch uh, the evidence, don't leave any traces, protect the evidence like the, uh, the evidence, digital evidence in our case would be DNA, avoid any kind of contamination. While in other sciences, they speak about the biological contamination, we speak about digital contamination. So avoid any digital contamination and uh, try if we speak about audio enhancement, 
in most of the cases is about uh, enhancing the voice in a noisy recording that contains, for instance, background music, background noises, background voices. So try to extract one voice, or if it is about authentication, given a file, try to find out if that audio file is consistent or inconsistent with an original. If the file contains any traces of uh, deletion, uh, inserts, uh, any kind of uh, digital processing, and you just mentioned uh, mentioned a few seconds ago uh, about uh, audio edits and the manipulations uh, and the video as well. So why to work three weeks when uh, in few seconds you can change the meaning of an entire discussion by deleting a yes or a no, or co copy pasting a no over a yes. So these are uh, things that, like uh, Cole already said, you need two seconds to do it. And you change the meaning of the discussion and you compromise a politician or uh, a person. And uh, speaking about the challenges now, uh, it's also about time. How fast can uh, our algorithm detect a local manipulation? Cole mentioned the two seconds to manipulate uh, a video and to do it quite simple by just playing with the uh, uh, the speed is uh, exactly the same uh, on the other side of the wall uh, in the forensic lab. You have to come with the results as soon as possible, uh, not in one week, ideally in two seconds as well, or even in real time. So uh, from the moment a deep fake is released on the market till the moment it is proved to be a deep fake, it can be two seconds, two hours, Today's this time frame can be crucial because uh, because of what's happening in uh, these critical hours. Uh, the news are released by, by one channel, let's say, and are repeated, amplified by the entire world. So the damage can be huge, and this is why it is necessary the method to be not only very good, uh, but to also be as fast as possible. So in the end, to come with a final conclusion as strong as possible from a scientific point of view and as fast as possible as well. And I'm sure, based on your expertise and seeing thousands of these, you can probably look at a video and know right away, well, okay, we're going to go and because we, you know where the distortions are happening just based on your own probably experience. And then you can go through the scientific process to confirm those things. But it raises a kind of an issue when someone brings something to you, how much should you know about the case to uh, inform your investigation, your examination, without coming to the point of introducing potential bias, right? Looking to find something. Uh, so if I give you a, a serologist, you know, a packet of blood or a toxicologist some blood to examine, they're going to run it through the system. Yes, this is cocaine, fentanyl, whatever, right? And, and it's a blind uh, system. So for you, you need a little bit more information, I think, or maybe not. I don't know. How, how do you feel about that line in terms of working with law enforcement or prosecutors and saying, you know, or, or whoever? I will uh, give you uh, exactly the description of a real case, a typical one. Everything starts with a link, an internet uh, link that anybody can just uh, access and uh, watch a video. And there is no information about the source, like the camera, uh, the microphone, the person that created that video. So uh, this is a... Uh, the evidence that we deal with in this kind of cases. Nobody assumes the originality of the kind of videos. They just appear uh, somewhere on internet and we have to work like in blind. No information, no reference, just given one file, try to squeeze that file by squeezing the science to find out any possible traces of uh, manipulation. So uh, from this point of view, ideally it would be yes, to have the camera, to have information from the person that created the video. And uh, there are cases uh, now when original videos 
uploaded on internet are considered by some people like uh, inconsistent with originals or edited. And uh, it was just a proof that uh, the people that created that image or video just showed up with the camera, with the original file, and uh, they assumed that the file that was uploaded on the internet was consistent with an original. So we have the opposite scenarios. This is just uh, real life. So from the moment we are given with a link, uh, we try to find out if there are any other versions of the same video on other websites. So many social media websites that can host this kind of videos. And uh, one of the tests that we have to do is to verify if uh, the video that is reported uh, and present on one of these social media websites is available on another one with a better quality. We can also verify the dates or the dates when these videos were uploaded. And like this, to start to understand the chronology. One video can be just uh, illegally or without respecting the copyright, copy pasted and uh, edited on another website. So the second video is not even the, the same quality and doesn't have the same length like the original. So this is why we have to dig and uh, some people call it forensic uh, media archaeology. So this is a, a very good uh, comparison between what we have to do sometimes, this kind of investigation. Meantime, the very first video that was uh, detected goes on a computer and the computer starts to analyze the video. And in the meantime, we look for a better quality video. We look for the source. We look for a version as close as possible to the original. We also look for a... Uh, information about the time when it was uploaded. We look for any kind of uh, other information uh, from uh, the same uh, user that uploaded. Sometimes if you follow, for instance, a user, you start to understand his modus operandi. You start to understand mm -hmm. the way he edits. Uh, you start to detect that uh, most of his videos are edited. Then it is logic to just put like a kind of tag on him and just the new videos that are coming uh, have not only traces of manipulation, but the traces of manipulation to be consistent with the traces of manipulation from previous videos. Real life examples we have. And uh, we also can start speaking like, uh, uh, I'll go with a comparison now. 100 years ago, when the criminals started to find out that their fingerprints from the crime scene can be used against them, they started to wear gloves. The same we started to notice now, that we can speak about smart edits made by people that started to understand a little bit of the media forensics, techniques that can be used and are used when analyzing a video, and they start to apply anti-forensic methods, like to delete tracings. So they're recognizing what artifacts you're recognizing and picking up on, and they're cleaning up their mess a little bit as they go along. They can try, and they started to, to delete uh, some of them. But mathematically speaking, it's impossible to remove all of them. And much more than this, when removing one of them, in fact, they introduced more traces. And mm -hmm. in the end, uh, our conclusion can be even much more stronger like the video is consistent with an original, and much more contains traces of anti-forensic tools. That, that's right. So uh, knowingly, there's the intention of recognizing that they're doing something wrong and trying to cover it up. Uh, so that is evidence of manipulation. So let's turn to um, your organization, the National Center for Media Forensics. Uh, it's a leading organization conducting research and examinations in, in this field. Tell us about your program, uh, the goals and purpose of the center. I guess that the best speaker about this is uh, my colleague, Paul, because he's a 100% product of the University of Colorado Denver and our program. So I come from an audio background. I've been in you know, studios, production, music production, played guitar, been in band, stuff like that, and have a lot of musician friends and stuff, and that's kind of audio is my, my real background. Um, I 
basically got into this because it's it was the only master's program that I knew of at the time, and turns out it's because it's the only master's program that exists like this for multimedia forensics. So um, I kind of just sort of got tired of being in the studio all the time, not really getting anywhere. So like I was gonna own my own studio, the world of digital music has kind of changed all that anyway. There are less, fewer and fewer studios to be a part of anymore. So I kind of went back to school, got my bachelor's degree from UCD, and then immediately went into this master's program as well. So I kind of have a unique perspective on that because I kind of came from this program, went through this program, and then now working in the field. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Um, but I would say that the, the center, we kind of have three or four sort of specific areas that we kind of look at. We have the master's program. We have the research that we do um, in the field, both kind of personally and also as a, as a part of larger the research community. Um, we have training courses that we offer for law enforcement and for people that are working in the field. And then we kind of have our, the sort of community work that, that we do uh, mostly uh, with Catalina there doing work for like local law enforcement and stuff like that. So I would say that the master's and the, and the research, the master's program and the research is kind of the two big driving things. So your students, where, where do they come from? Uh, one of the things about digital evidence, uh, you go back, you know, because it is such a relatively new field compared to some of these other uh, forensic disciplines, people kind of hobbled, you know, they, they came from many different fields. And, um, and is that what you see with your student population? They're coming from engineering, computer science, uh, other types of programs? For us particularly, I think because we're also a part of the College of Arts and Media at the university, I think I would say about half of our cohort every year comes from the creative field. Um, a lot of them come with an audio background. Um, some of them have a photography background, video background, stuff like that. So a sort of creative but technical background is kind of a, a common thread. Uh, but then we also have lots of people that are yeah, computer science majors, criminalistic majors, criminology and stuff like that. Uh, people from, from the CJC kind of world of stuff. We have people that are working professionals already. Again, we're, like I said, we're the only master's program that specifically deals with media forensics. So we have a lot of people that are, you know, friends of the center in the community at, you know, at the forensic science conferences that we go to, AES, all that kind of stuff, that will then actually join the program and become a part of it as well. Um, I would say just about every cohort has at least one person that's been a working professional that is out in the field doing stuff that is kind of furthering their education with us. So. And then that also kind of goes with the training courses that we offer for law enforcement or for people in the field. That also often leads to them kind of furthering that and going through the master's program as well. The kind of training courses are to kind of whet your appetite, get you hooked on, on it, and then you kind of come for the master's program for the full, for the full course meal. Yeah, they kind of come from everywhere. I mean, really, and I think the most commonly the ones that do the most successfully have some sort of technical background, just in, in a digital sense, they understand computers, they understand at least a little bit of signal processing, and that type of stuff, um, which is important for the digital side of stuff. But I mean, they really come from everywhere. You know, our program is a hybrid program. It's a mostly online program. So most of the courses are done online. And then we have not now, thanks to the kind of human malware that's out there now, but uh, we have uh, on-site times, basically every, every semester just about, there's a week where you're here on campus doing stuff hands-on with lectures and with our computers and stuff like that. But because of that, that let us open everything up to essentially the world. So we have people from all over the states, just about every state in, in the US, um, as well as we've had people from the UK, from the Middle East, I mean, everywhere, Africa. Excellent, excellent. Oh, so then when you think about where they end up, at least to domestic students, you're looking at uh, the government organizations, FBI, other types, but also the private sector. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of private companies. Uh, Target and Walmart have huge forensic labs. Uh, that's a, that's, that world of stuff is kind of a common area for people to get into. Um, there's the federal labs. Um, there's obviously local and you know, state and city law enforcement and stuff that it goes into. But then the other side of the private stuff is like uh, working as consultants for other companies or also just working for themselves, starting their own businesses. Um, that's, that's a big one. And then kind of going in and working with other tech companies too. Um, I know we have an alum that's working with Uber on their kind of AI driving side of stuff. Um, you know, there are private companies that do work. They, they present and create demonstratives to use in court cases. And so we have people that are a part of that world as well that, that take the tools and the stuff that they learn here and apply that directly to how to create and, and kind of make the most advanced and most detailed and most scientific background um, on, on their demonstratives and stuff like that for cases as well. I mean, yeah, it's kind of all over. It's a relatively open field. Like you said, it's, it's a younger field. So the other kind of big part of this is the academic side of that stuff too. It's, you know, I think the 
the world sort of just kind of accepted a lot of the stuff that kind of came out of DNA testing and fingerprint testing and the kind of more traditional forensic sciences. And when the digital stuff started kind of coming in, and especially the digital media forensic science stuff, it kind of turned a lot of that stuff over. Um, and it kind of started creating a need for much more rigorous scientific focus on stuff. There have been a lot of reports that have come out over the last couple of years that have kind of emphasized that. And I think because we're a relatively younger discipline within the forensic sciences, we were ripe for, yeah, we jump on this and we're now going to be the strongest as far as science goes. We may not have 40 years of people in the field doing this stuff, but we're, we're starting off right off the bat with the most, the strongest foundation in the scientific world. So there's a whole other academic side of it too, where the research, the science, the publications, all that kind of stuff needs to come in. And so that's a whole other world. And that's actually the world that I was most intrigued in. And that's why I'm you know, super happy to be here with the university doing this stuff because you know, being on the kind of sort of ground level of getting that research done, getting that, that work out and kind of furthering the, the field as a whole is, is super important and I'm proud of it. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, the combination of education, standard uh, procedures, and uh, the pursuit of research as a collective. Let's uh, wrap this up with your thoughts on what's next. What are some key developments and challenges and moving forward in the uh, in the field of media forensics? Yes, it's a very dynamic field, and if we go deep into it, we can start uh, to split it. Uh, into forensic audio, forensic image, forensic video, and also deep voices, deep uh, faces. So it is expectable the deep face and deep voices to be better and better. It's just normal. The computers to be way faster. So uh, what a computer can do is now in uh, one week to be able to do it in one hour. Is just normal. The capacity to store information to be way bigger and cheaper. Mm-hmm. We see this is the tendency for the past 50 years, in fact, to build. We uh, expect also the forensic uh, media to advance because we always follow the latest developments in this kind of field. So uh, we have to be aware of the latest technologies to counterface audio, images, and videos. So for sure, uh, this is a very dynamic uh, field, and uh, the techniques used by the forensic labs to be the same, better and faster, ideally to work almost real time. We know from a mathematical point of view that real time doesn't impact exit. It's about, let's say, milliseconds, seconds uh, from the input till the output of a result. And it makes sense, it's just normal to be like this. We uh, expect from this uh, technological point of view, huge advances. Uh, We can speak about new algorithms to compress data uh, and to be better than uh, what we have uh, nowadays. We are aware of the latest uh, mobile phone uh, standards that are already finished on the paper. But from an industrial point of view now, we have to wait like five to 10 years. So let's say that the mobile phones that uh, uh, will be available on the market in 10 years by now, uh, we already know the technology that they will use, but we uh, don't have the technology to build them yet. So we already have a clue of the direction we will have to go with the research. So the hot milestones that we see in the predictable future, like in five to 10 years by now. Looking to the past, we, all, uh, we also have unsolved problems. And we speak about uh, technology developed five to 10 years ago, and uh, we are still digging to find out uh, methods to analyze uh, audios and videos and images produced with this kind of technology. And it's still a huge, huge ocean or pool of information that we know that it is there in uh, the files. And uh, we try to improve the methods that we already have to expect much more information. So for sure, uh, for people that uh, want to join this field, this is uh, a huge one. And uh, yeah. if we ca- compare it with handwriting, then, uh, or fingerprints, then yes, our field is very young. 
but uh, I guarantee that uh, there are a lot of wonderful challenges. And uh, nobody that joins this kind of field has time uh, to get bored. No. I, I can't see how you can get bored. <laughs> Speaking of like, you know, other fields and stuff like that, I don't know how much you can add to teaching and pedagogy at this point, right? Like it's really difficult. You have to be really specialized to do that, but you can always add something to a, a younger field. There's lots of room to grow and lots of, of places to go. So it's another advantage of it being a young field too. Is there's, there's a lot of work there, a lot of, a lot of good stuff. So the, the biggest I think hurdle that we're finding as we go forward with all, I would imagine it's in every kind of forensic field though. And as digital media becomes easier and easier to store more and more of it, there's more and more stuff to sift through, um, you know, cases and work that maybe, you know, even just 10 years ago might've been maybe 50% digital is now moving closer and closer to being hundred percent digital. Um, I, there's lots of uh, people that we work with um, DAs and stuff like that, that say that they don't have a single case that doesn't have some, either cell phone footage or cell phone data, anything like that, any sort of computer data, everything has digital stuff in it. So it's becoming more and more common and it's becoming harder and harder to parse through all that stuff. We're kind of at the cusp of the beginning of, there's sort of the traditional stuff, really most a lot of the stuff that Catalina's talked about, the ways that we're detecting things um, is more traditional. It requires somebody to kind of sit down and do some stuff to it. And then we're kind of moving towards a sort of AI versus AI world of, of kind of work. You know, the more stuff that's being generated and the more stuff that's automatically being generated, the more we have to do on the forensic side of automatically, you know, fighting or detecting or categorizing at the very least, being able to focus in on, we have 10 terabytes of data to go through, but we only need to look at this one gigabyte. This is the stuff that's important, that type of stuff. I think that's going to be the biggest challenge and that's, that's the biggest hurdle, I think, regardless of how strong and how good the tools are and how many things are out there. That's, I think, going to be the biggest hurdle that this whole field, all of the forensic sciences are facing right now. This is a fantastic conversation. I'd like to thank our guests today, Kathleen Gregoris and Cole Whitecotton. Thank you for spending time with Just Science to discuss deep fakes and video authentication and your program at the National Center. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Mike Planney, and this has been another episode of Just Science. In the next episode, Just Science interviews Dr. Katherine Siegfried Speller about the relationship between vicarious trauma and digital evidence. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.